Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. And welcome to the second hour of our broadcast and podcast. All right, the phone lines are open. Yes, the the lantern has been lit. If you'd like to join the conversation, please do so. 801-331-8113. All right, I, I've been, I, I almost didn't share this, but I, I yeah, it, it, it hit a nerve and made me go, yeah, you probably should say something here. Uh, what's the guy's name? Will Bunch. As in your panties will bunch, as you see uh, Americans standing up for their uh, inalienable rights in Virginia. Will Bunch, writing for Inquirer.com, has an opinion piece. Here's the title. Call Richmond's MLK Day gun rally what it was. An outbreak of terrorism on American soil. I know, there's a part of me that wants to laugh, but then again, I think back, uh, you know, Bundy Ranch the Malheur Wildlife Refuge, there were people who were throwing around words like terrorism at that time. And uh, boy, it, it turned out not only to be an overstatement, as the, the government found out, when its case against those involved, both in Bunkerville and in Malheur, uh, basically was turned around and, well, uh, let's just say put where the sun doesn't shine, and because it, it, it couldn't hold up to the light of day. And I think uh, Mr. Bunch... Is, uh, is probably dead wrong here, but I wanted to share a couple of, of his observations just because this is the kind of mindset that is out there promoting why is, you know, this is why the government is right to restrict the people's right to keep and bear arms. And it, it has everything to do with distorting what actually happened. So if you just keep in mind that Will Bunch is writing from a position that is not uh, necessarily connected to reality, then it starts to make a little bit more sense. But he starts by saying on a day set aside to celebrate a fighter for peace and human rights who was shot and killed in Memphis on April 4th, 1968 with a .30-06 Remington rifle, our social media streams were filled with middle-aged white men in absurd camouflage wearing helmets or flak jackets, some illegally covering their faces with masks, with assault rifles or grenade launchers or weaponry to shoot down a small aircraft strapped to their bodies. Holy cow, has this guy ever considered a career writing for Hollywood? Now, he dutifully repeats the narrative that Vice had helped to perpetuate. Virginia declares a state of emergency after armed militias threatened to storm the Capitol. So the event came and went. Was there anything that even remotely reflected armed militias threatening to storm the Capitol? Come on, any honest person, anyone who actually followed the coverage knows the answer is no. But interestingly enough, and, and listen, listen to the connections being drawn here. This is every left-wing, hardcore social justice buzzword that, that he can throw here as they marched a stone's throw from what had been the capital of the Confederacy. <laughs> the marchers argued to a man, and they were virtually all men, that in essence they want their country back. Now, obviously, you know, this guy, I think, had his uh, his his take firmly in mind and then just tried to to make it fit you know i'm sure if i hammer this in here hard enough i can i can make this fit the narrative that, that i want to because i don't know how he could have missed there were so many people there who were not the typical white male 
I think one of my favorites was uh, there. There were a number of of uh, blacks. And in fact, one of my favorites was a black woman standing there with an AR-15 slung across her chest and a Glock on her hip. Out there standing, not just for her freedom, but for the freedom of everybody. And we're going to put this into perspective. What were they really standing for? This guy calls it terrorism, which is a very loaded word, as you as you can imagine. The rally led by the Virginia Citizens Defense League drew an estimated 22,000 to a state capitol on a total lockdown with guns banned from the fenced in sight of the actual event. Was it necessary? I don't know. Governor uh, Northam certainly took credit for it. And he points out uh, Governor Northam uh, declared his state of emergency, partial gun ban and other measures successfully de-escalated what could have been a volatile situation. Okay, so let's just put this into perspective here. And I'm sorry if I sound a little bit amped up on this, but um, this Governor Northam is uh, he is he's as full of it as 10 pounds of fertilizer in a five pound bag to say that he and his uh, his police, uh, his show of force on the part of the state and all these emergency measures and trying to corral people into this little uh, concentration camp that they built there on the state capitol, that's what successfully de-escalated. No, it's not. In fact, if anything, it created potential for confrontation, which I think the governor was actually more or less looking forward to. He didn't de-escalate a volatile situation. He created a vol- volatile situation. And then took credit for the self-control and the uh, the lawfulness and the the uh, just flat-out respectful behavior of the individuals who participated. Now, let me be clear here: the silent battalion that showed up and and that uh, walked through the streets of Virginia, of Richmond, Virginia, uh, all around the Capitol. They didn't actually go into the quarantine area where everybody had to be searched and leave their, their guns behind, not just their guns, but everything. You know, the, the official proclamation, the, the emergency declaration specifically included torches and pitchforks as forbidden items <laughs> to, to bring to the Capitol. I know. And everything else. I don't think you could have got nail clippers. Even the TSA was looking at it going, geez, guys, lighten up. But that silent battalion. Here's what I saw from both the video footage as well as the still footage that I saw of what these these individuals were doing. First of all, you had individuals in there who clearly have uh, have had training. I would suspect many of them have probably served in the armed forces They weren't all dressed in, you know, their uniforms. They weren't marching, you know, wherever they went. But they were very clearly organized. They were very clearly disciplined. And they very clearly knew what they were about. And that has to be a very terrifying thing for any politician who's determined that we are going to subjugate you and you're going to do what we tell you and you're going to like it. Because their message was, we are not going to take what you are forcing on us. And you are being fairly warned. This is this is the equivalent of the rattler rattling his tail to warn you you're getting too close. You are in danger, not because he's looking to cause trouble with you, but because you are continuing to press into something that you shouldn't, namely his territory, his personal space. And you have to be very, uh, as, as I mentioned with Eric Peters, willfully obtuse not to see that uh, this was a warning, and it was a fair and clear warning to the officials in Virginia. So when uh, Will Bunch 
talks about how, uh, you know, this 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 protest was anything but but peaceful. He likes to throw around the word terrorism. In fact, he says what we just witnessed was arguably the most successful use of terrorism on U.S. soil in nearly a generation, even if this time was non lethal. Really? Wow. Talk about uh, twisting definitions and moving the goalpost. So how was it terrorism? Well, he says, because people were terrified. He says what really happened in Richmond was that men with enough firepower to defeat the Ukrainian army with the very real threat of violence strapped to their backs aimed to intimidate not just the state lawmakers just elected by the majority of Virginia voters on a gun safety platform, but to scare away any citizens wishing to use their First Amendment rights to speak out against them. He says people were terrified. That's why he calls it terrorism. People who own businesses in downtown Richmond shuttered their doors for the day. People who live in the immediate neighborhood of the protests left because they were scared of the gun toters and what might happen. Okay, so I'm going to just hearken back a few years 2016, to be exact, when Ammon Bundy and another group of of individuals occupied the Malheur Wildlife Refuge. They were 30 or 40 miles away from Burns, Oregon. What did the FBI and local authorities and state police do? They came into that town. They took over the, uh, the one of the local schools there. They created a garrison right there in the town. And put up blockades and, you know, guards everywhere, menacing. And I mean menacing, as in pointing guns at people, you know, to, to, in, to make sure that they were sufficiently intimidated by this display of authority. And it was blamed on, well, you know, it's uh, those people out there at the refuge. Oh, you mean the ones 40 miles away? The ones where people were free to come and go as they chose, where, where nobody was prevented from coming out there. Nobody was prevented from leaving. I think psychologists call this projection. And that's uh, that's what uh, Mr. Bunch, as well as a number of officials, are doing. Mr. Bunch says, think about the rights that we hold dear as most dear as Americans. The rights to move around freely from place to place, unless you have a gun. To assemble in public and to hold rallies to air grievances, unless you have a gun. And to counter people one disagrees with by exercising free speech and opposing points of view, unless you have a gun. He says American citizens were deprived of those basic rights on Monday, on Martin Luther King Day of all days, by an intimidating, bullying armed mob. Do not dare call this peaceful. Now, I added in the part about unless you have a gun to illustrate. He's right. All of those uh, rights were being curtailed by the state. (laughs) Okay, I'll calm down for a minute. We'll come back right after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. I probably shouldn't give Mr. Bunch, you know, the uh, recognition he's obviously seeking for this, but I, I have to share this and I have to give attribution to the guy who, who wrote this, uh, this missive because this illustrates a mindset that nonetheless, it's out there. there are, it's not just Will Bunch who believes this. There are actually a lot of people who hold to this narrative. Well, you know, the, the really lawless people were the ones out there, you know, with guns because they cannot fathom the idea that you could, you could be peacefully armed. And I mean armed to the teeth. 
that just doesn't compute. Somehow they have this blind spot that, well, but a gun in the hands of someone who is employed by the state, why, that is a blessing and it's a beneficial thing. But the idea that someone would, uh, would have access to the tools necessary to preserve the peace and safety of themselves and their loved ones against, be it criminal attack, be it an external invasion, or be it internal tyranny from the very government that supposedly exists to, you know, guarantee and and uphold their God-given rights. That's a bad thing. And it's it's a very selective form of outrage. So I actually I do have a link to uh, to this column. It's in the show notes. I would encourage you read it for yourself. Read it at least once. It's like the Song of Solomon. You know, everybody should read it once. <laughs> but read it to understand that this is the mindset that drives the hysteria that maintains why this was the hugest act of terrorism ever done on American soil. There was no terrorism. Now, there was plenty of attempts at intimidation, but that was on the part of the state. And if you saw the silent battalion as they were walking around through the streets of Richmond, they weren't out there mad-dogging everybody. They were simply showing tooth and claw, not in a menacing way, but just reminding the government and those who, uh, who act within the government that they work for us. We are not their serfs. We are not, uh, you know... A, herd of cattle to be managed by them there are limits to their power i mean i would draw a similarity to what happened in 1215 at runnymede when uh, the nobles got together and by sword point convinced king john that look your powers are not absolute he had to be reminded of this at sword point they forced him to sign the great charter the magna carta which acknowledged there are limits to your power and there is consent that must be given by those that you seek to govern. And he wisely signed it. So in a very real sense, Virginia was having a sort of Magna Carta moment. Now, they didn't go to the point of actually pointing guns at politicians. And I don't think they would have. It would, the, the time wasn't there. It, it wasn't like they were under deadly threat. You were under deadly threat under the King John. Basically, the king owned you. If he said, hey, I'm going to war with this country or with this person or that, uh, you know, that city state over there. I'm going to go fight them. You belong to me. You go fight. You had to do it. You had to drop what you were doing. If he said, I need your property. I need your daughter. Whatever it was, by the divine right of kings, you had to give him whatever he wanted. And that was what rallied the nobles to stand up and say, you know what? If you are not doing this in our interests, if you're just strictly operating in your own interests, then you are not legitimate. And they had to force him at sword point to acknowledge, brother, you don't have all the cards here. This was a much more subtle, maybe we should say a more diplomatic way of warning those authorities in Virginia. What you are doing goes beyond the legitimate scope of your powers because you are trying to create criminals out of people who have never committed a crime, much less harmed another person. And warning them, if you push this to bloodshed, and if that sounds like a radical thing to point out, I just, I mean, look, I have to remind you, there is no law, there is no regulation, there is no statute that is not backed 
by some form of government force. Else they would just be suggestions. So Virginia authorities were rightly put on notice. If you continue to push this to bloodshed, you have no mantle of innocence to hide behind. You have been fairly warned that we will not comply and that we will defend our rights. Now, to me, the saddest thing is that that sounds like the most radical stuff you have probably heard today. I wouldn't be surprised if you were shaking your head and pitying. Brian, what are you thinking? What are you? Why are you talking this way? Don't you know that this is just pouring fuel on the fire? But again, I, I have to remind you, these are people who are acting defensively. They did not uh, push this issue. They weren't the ones who went to government and said, hey, let's fight. <laughs> they, they simply said, leave us alone. Let us peaceably live our lives. And these politicians drunk on hubris and the sense of their power and their their majesty and their ability to shape the world, to make people the way that they want them to be. Refuse to listen. The only sad thing that I can can think of here is that, uh, okay, the warning has been given. And I think it was as eloquent a warning as could possibly have been given by the people. I don't think the politicians are likely to take it. I don't think they're going to heed that warning. I think they will continue to tread upon that rattler until they get bitten. And when they have been bitten, when blood is shed, they will really flip out and they will declare a state of emergency. Maybe they'll declare martial law. Maybe they'll call in the National Guard. But let's be very clear. They were fairly warned. They can't accuse you, you people. You, this was some kind of sneak attack. How could you do this? They warned you. They told you, stop pushing us against our will. Stop treading illegitimately into our lives. And if you were so cocksure of yourself that well, we don't have to heed what you little people are saying, that you decided to just bulldoze right over the top of them, well... When you get to own the consequences, you need to be reminded. And I will be there among others to remind them. We told you. You were warned. You were told. You were given every opportunity to step back from the abyss, from the, the confrontation and the danger that you created because of your insatiable lust for power. Now, I pray it doesn't come to that. I don't see any situation in which bloodshed is going to benefit anybody. And at the same time, I see I see these politicians and these power seekers pushing it just because they think they can. They really believe. No, no, no. It is our divine right. Well, they don't believe in divinity, but they believe that uh, somehow they are made from a finer clay, as Bastiat would put it. They have this inherent right to tell people, to control people, to make people do what they want, to bend us to their will. And sometimes it is sadly necessary for them to be put back into their place. And even more sadly, there are times when that uh, involves standing up and defending what is right, even to the point of bloodshed. No sane person would ever welcome such a thing. But neither should they fail to acknowledge that sometimes it is, sadly, a necessary thing. I don't know where it goes from here. 
I can't see the future. It's it's been an interesting year. Do you feel like we've we've had more intriguing and and volatile stuff happen in the in the first three weeks of 2020 than than I think we had in all of 2019? And it just seems to be ramping up. It's getting even more intense. I don't know where it goes, but I know this. It has never been more essential for you and me to know who we are, to know what we stand for and to be willing to stand out, to stand up rather and speak out as necessary in defense of those things which matter. And that right to self-determination, which is part of our right to life, which includes the right to keep and bear arms. It's one of those things we need to stand up for. When we come back, I'm going to share with you a great article from Jacob Hornberger about how gun rights don't come from the Second Amendment. It's a great reminder. We'll have it just the other side of these messages. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And we are back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Jacob Hornberger, president of the Future of Freedom Foundation, FFF.org, always has some great uh, food for thought. Very principled man, a very staunch defender of freedom. And I want to share with you an article of his. This is actually from a couple of years ago. This is from uh, March of 2018. Gun rights don't come from the Second Amendment. Now, I know you probably know a lot of this, but I also bet there have been opportunities, maybe within the past few days, maybe within the last few hours, in which you were talking with people who may not understand this. So just as a refresher, and this is probably as much for me as it is for you, here's how Jacob Hornberger explains it. He says, whenever there's a gun massacre, statists inevitably respond that it's time to repeal the Second Amendment. The idea is that if the Second Amendment is gone... So will be the right to own guns in the United States. But he says there's just one big problem with that position. It's wrong. The Second Amendment, like the First Amendment, doesn't give anyone rights. Instead, it prohibits the federal government from infringing on rights that are natural and God-given and that pre-exist government. The Declaration of Independence sets forth the essential principles. Every person, in other words, not just American citizens is endowed by nature or God with fundamental rights. These include life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thus, given that people's rights are natural and God-given, they pre-exist government. The rights come first, and the government comes second. So what is the purpose of government? Well, the Declaration answers the question. The purpose of government is to protect the existence and exercise of people's natural God-given rights. That was the reason for calling the federal government into existence with the U.S. Constitution to protect people's natural God-given rights that pre-existed the federal government. Now, Jacob Hornberger says a big potential problem arises, the possibility, even likelihood, that the government itself will end up infringing or even destroying people's rights. That possibility deeply concerned our American ancestors. They were convinced that government itself, not some foreign entity, constituted the biggest threat to their freedom, their privacy, their property, and pursuit of happiness. 
That's why they were not terribly enthusiastic about approving the Constitution. If they hadn't approved it, the United States would have continued operating under the Articles of Confederation, under which the national government didn't even have the power to tax people. The American people finally decided to go along with the deal. The biggest argument that finally sold it to them was that the U.S. government, I'm sorry, the U.S. Constitution, rather, which called the federal government into existence, strictly limited the powers of the federal government to those few powers that were enumerated in the document. Those enumerated powers did not include the power to infringe or destroy people's natural God-given rights, rights, again, that preexisted the federal government. Thus, even without the Bill of Rights, the federal government had no legitimate authority to control what people read or what people owned, including books and guns. That's because these rights pre-existed the government, and because the Constitution did not give the federal government the power to infringe on these pre-existing rights. In fact, if the government did infringe on people's natural God-given rights, it would be violating the very reason that people call governments into existence, to protect the existence and the exercise of their rights. So he asks, so why then was the Bill of Rights necessary? And he answers, in a technical sense, it wasn't. Since the powers delegated to the federal government were enumerated in the Constitution, And since the delegated powers did not include the powers to control what people read or owned, including books and guns, the Bill of Rights was essentially superfluous. In fact, some people argued that by enumerating some rights in the Bill of Rights, that might be construed to mean that those were the only rights that were being protected. That's why the Ninth Amendment was enacted, to point out that that was not the intention. The reason the Bill of Rights was enacted was because of the deep concern that our American ancestors had about the threat that the new federal government would pose to their rights and liberties. They believed that this government, their government, would inevitably end up doing what every other government in history has done, destroy their rights. And that's why they enacted the Bill of Rights, to hammer the message home that the American people were expressly prohibiting the federal government from traveling the road to tyranny that all other governments in history had traveled. But notice something important about the Bill of Rights. It gives no one any rights. Instead, it prohibits the federal government from infringing or destroying rights that already exist. It really should have been called a Bill of Prohibitions rather than a Bill of Rights. So Jacob Hornberger says, thus, people don't have the right to own guns because of the Second Amendment, just as people don't have the right of free speech because of the First Amendment. People's natural God-given rights pre-exist government. They exist whether the Bill of Rights, the Constitution and the federal government are there or not. What happens when a government infringes or destroys the rights of the people? Well, the Declaration of Independence gives us the answer. It is the right of the people to alter or even abolish the government and institute new government whose powers are limited to its legitimate function. That's a right that every American living today should keep in mind. So when you hear people going on about all these people in Virginia, how dare they stand up? How dare people come from outside of Virginia to stand against the legitimate government elected by a majority of voters in Virginia? They are ignoring one of the very key arguments here, which is that government has some things that are outside of its scope of legitimacy. And when government goes there, somebody's got to stand up and say no. 
Now, I'm just going to ask you to consider human nature. How often is the crowd right, especially when it comes to an emotional issue? When people get whipped up on emotion, particularly if there's fear or there's anger that's involved, how how clearly do they think? I think you get the picture, right? It's not a matter of, uh, well, you know, uh, these these people, uh, there's nothing to fear from their government. Oh, I think so. If your government is trying to, if it's trying to make you into a criminal without you actually having committed a criminal act, it's acting illegitimately. And somebody has to be willing to stand up. And in this case, it was, I'll grant you, that was a minority of people who showed up armed in Richmond, Virginia. But it doesn't take a majority of people doing the right thing to remind government that you have limits that have to be observed. And if government is willing to go to murderous ends to exceed those limits, you and I have an absolute right to protect our lives, our liberty, and our property from that kind of behavior. Obviously, no one wants to see that happen. But it doesn't change the fact that throughout human history, it's been necessary from time to time. It is a, it's a fact of human nature. You give someone a little bit of power, they have the tendency to run with it and to abuse it. This isn't the first resort. You have the soapbox. You have the ballot box. You have the jury box. And as that last resort, you reach for the cartridge box. Now, the unpleasant truth that I think a lot of us, myself included, really don't want to have to acknowledge is we've unfortunately reached a point where the soapbox is tolerated, but only within this First Amendment zone and only if you've been patted down and only if you have bent the knee to government versus, uh, you know, the uh, the the ballot box. How many of us actually have any kind of ability to influence government through our vote alone? Very few. It's probably the least effective way we have of trying to to uh, affect some sort of change in our society. The illusion is there. Oh, well, you know, that's why you got to get out there and vote. And I I would encourage you be active, be engaged. But understand, there's more to it than simply the ballot box. The jury box is next. And this can be a very effective approach, and, and it may actually be, this is, this is one of the things we're going to see happen in Virginia. Let's say Democratic lawmakers continue to press forward, oh, we're going to pass these laws, we're going to make felons out of as many people as possible, just by this stroke of a pen, and by saying, you can't have what you have, or you can't have it if you don't register it with us so we know where to come and collect it when we decide that we have enough support to do that. Well, if the jurors understand that they, only, they not only have the power to judge the facts in the case, but they can judge the law itself. And if enough jurors, even if actually if it's just one juror on every jury says, that's a load of crap. I'm not going to back that, and I will not vote to uh, convict this person. They are, in effect, nullifying bad laws. Now, if you think, well, now we have to upload, uphold laws no matter what, I would maintain, no, we don't. In the same sense that if you were on the jury and you were told, hey, this person helped a slave escape slavery, but uh, thankfully the slave catchers came and caught him and returned them. And uh, now we need to convict this person of violating the Fugitive Slave Act. Would you have voted to convict? Now, if your answer is yes, then I would suggest you uh, need to go check your moral compass. 
might be time for some calibration. If your answer is, of course I wouldn't convict. It's the same principle. Government doesn't always get it right, and it's incumbent on us as citizens to know the difference between right and wrong. When we come back, I'm going to share with you an essay from uh, Leonard E. Reed, actually excerpts from his essay about uh, talking to myself. It's great stuff. I hope you'll uh, stick around for it. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Uh, before I get to the Leonard E. Reed essay that I want to share with you, there's actually it's a great write-up by Gary Gallus that was on the Foundation for uh, for uh, Economic Education, fee.org. I just had this headline I had to share from uh, from the Babylon Bee. Again, they're right on target here. The headline, Being Outraged by Stupid Nonsense Replaces Baseball as National Pastime. <laughs> Is it bad that uh, there's more truth in their headlines than in some of the uh, so-called legitimate news outlets that uh, that a lot of people depend on? So let me share this with you. This is why talking to yourself is so important. And it's in honor of the 50th anniversary of Leonard E. Reed's essay, Talking to Myself, which highlights a lot of useful insights into liberty. And these were compiled by Gary Gallus, and it's a very good place to help us reinvigorate our understanding of and our commitment to liberty. And it's even worth considering why he would give such a title to a book he wanted others to read. So here's a little sampling of his insights. And this is probably the most important one that he leads off with here. You ready for this? I am the only part of society... I have been commissioned to save. Oh, my goodness. Let that sink in for just a moment. Do you realize how much mischief and how much heartache could be avoided if people would simply adopt that as their creed? It doesn't mean that you can't make a difference in the lives of others. But as far as who have you been commissioned to save? You have to start with yourself. Here's something else Leonard Reed said. Each must look inside himself. Thus do individuals reform society. See, he was a big fan of if you want to improve things, you've got to start at the source. That's you. I'll just go through a few of these quotes. Stop me if any of them uh, you know, ring especially true to you. Government affords no cure. That comes from individual awakening. I think about this. I, w- I was just watching. Uh, um, I don't know the guy's last name. His name is Brian. He operates a, a, a YouTube channel called Impact or High Impact Vlogs. Brilliant, brilliant young man. And he was trying to explain how morality cannot originate f- strictly from legislation or a mandate that, that comes through legislation. It has to originate from a choice you made in your heart. To do the right thing. If it's coming through the force of law, then it's not freely chosen. And therefore, it's not really virtue. That's a connection that uh, very few people can make today. And I'm sorry, that's all across the political spectrum. It's not just the left wingers. We want to change society and make everybody more compassionate, you know, by this law. There's a lot of folks on the political right that fall prey to the very same thing. Don't make that mistake. Back to Leonard E. Reed. When the objective is freedom, the real action is within the individual. 
All actions and all ideas inimical to a free society are destructive. And again, that starts at the individual level. When the trend is away from, not toward, a free society, the drift is marked by a decline in human virtue. He also said, we're off course anytime any peaceful individual is denied the full use of his own faculties and resources. Check this one out. Politicians who promise majorities what they want are easily elected to positions of power over the resources of everyone. This is exactly what you saw happen in Virginia, by the way. Leonard Reed says, when this situation governs, justice is out of the question and essentially free society, impossible. So however well-intentioned mom's demand action may be, however well-intentioned Mayor Bloomberg may be with all the millions he dumped into Virginia's legislative races, their intentions alone cannot justify running roughshod over the natural rights of those millions of Virginians who have never harmed a soul, but still run the very real risk of being create being turned into criminals being uh, made criminals by words on paper back to leonard reed he said freedom affords justice whereas socialism does not and cannot i like this next one this is very descriptive every socialistic thing is someone's pet For me to stand for one socialistic item, regardless of how emotionally committed, is for me to give away the case for freedom. He says, can I forcibly take the fruits of your labor to rescue someone without committing a crime? I cannot. Urgency or personal need need no more warrants, need no more warrants, coercive force on the part of government than on my part. Now, again, that cuts clear across the political spectrum. It's not just the left wing social justice people who should be paying attention to that. Many of my dear friends on the political right, you should be paying attention. If it would be wrong for you to forcibly take money from someone for whatever your pet cause is, you know, the governor's office of economic development or whatever it may be, it's wrong for government to do it. It doesn't matter if a majority of people say, well, yeah, we agree with that. What's wrong remains wrong, even if masses of people are doing it, even if it's being done under some official capacity. Immoral behavior does not magically transmogrify into a moral act by virtue of some lawyer saying, well, this is uh, this is okay." (laughs) Back to Leonard E. Reed, what actions of men should be inhibited and so on? You ready for this answer? Only fraud misrepresentation, predation. That is all destructive actions against some others. He says nothing but ill can flow from plundering others and redistributing the loot. He also says the only reason for the feeble present condition of our faith in voluntary behavior is that voluntarism has largely been deadened by governmental takeover. Let government codify and enforce the taboos against destructive actions. Leave everything creative to men acting freely, competitively, cooperatively, privately. Free and self-responsible men are as good as imperfect men can be. We should trust free men. Those who are coerced behave irresponsibly. He says, creation does not require of me that I be its architect. I need only attend to my own growth and to play my part in the preservation of freedom. The sole state in which your and my growth is possible. 
This goes this goes back to something that has has rang very true to me, especially in the last 10 to 15 years and even more so in the last five or six years. Not only do we each have an individual role to play, but the most important role that each of us can play starts with rectifying ourselves. Now, I can't speak to how everyone approaches this. I will tell you that for me personally, it started with me humbling myself enough to get on my knees and to go before my creator and to ask God, what would you have me do? And if that sounds like, well, that's an easy enough thing to do. I beg to differ. It's actually one of the scariest things that I've ever done in my life. And I would offer as evidence of that um, just a few years ago. I felt in my heart, I felt a stirring like there's more that you could be doing with yourself. There's, there's more that you could do to, to utilize what I blessed you with. That's, that's the sense I had in my heart. And, and I, I really felt like, well, then I want to do that. I want to do what, uh, what my creator would have me do. And I did spend time asking God, what, what do you want me to do? And it wasn't just a one-shot thing. Hey, man, tell me what to do. Okay, got the text. I'm on it. No, it took multiple times and thinking about it and, and pondering and, and wrestling with it in my heart. And ultimately, I finally was like, you know what? <sighs> Maybe I'm dense, but I'm having a hard time sorting out what you expect of me. And so I asked God, would you show me? Can you please just make it more clear to me? And about a week later, I was handed a pink slip and told, go kick a pebble down the road. Now, interestingly enough, the night before I was uh, let go from this radio job, I had the most clear impression that tomorrow you're going to be let go from your job. And I mean, it was clear enough that I was like, whoa, where did that come from? Strong enough that I actually cleared out my desk and took my stuff home and told my wife, you're going to think I'm nuts, but I just had the strongest sense that uh, tomorrow I'm going to be let go. And I mean, we laughed about it. Well, I don't know why I would think that, but, but uh, the next day when I showed up for work and, oh, look, you know, hey, the HR people are here and whatnot, it was very clear. No, that was, uh, that w- it was going to happen. And rather than feeling crushed and feeling defeated, like, oh, no, this is the worst thing that could happen. I was like, this was supposed to happen. Because I felt like I felt like God planted that thought in my heart to prepare me so that I'd recognize you wanted to be shown that there's something more for you to do. Okay, it's time for you to uh, start doing something different. Now, I don't know if your situation is going to be like that. I only share this with you because I just want to confirm that I believe that God will direct you if you ask for that kind of help. I also believe that your help is desperately needed. There's a role you need to fill. Find out what it is. You know the source you need to go to. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 